Hello! And welcome to Ignite Seattle! How many people have been to Ignite Seattle before? Wow! That is exactly 50% of you. And we know that because we've been asking that question, I guess this is the 39th time. We also have that data from our previous surveys, so we know exactly what is up. In a few minutes, I'll be talking about what Ignite Seattle is for the people who don't know. So just sit tight. I first want to welcome you back to the beautiful Town Hall Seattle. We were in the Egyptian theater because Town Hall went through a massive renovation. In fact, the place we were sitting in looked like this just recently. A lot of work was done, but the thing I'm most um, excited about are the gender neutral bathrooms that were added. My fingers are crossed that this is going to help with the bathroom line, but if not, legs crossed. So Ignite is all about diverse storytelling, and we have a lot of diverse events. We do this event three times a year, we do a speaker's workshop, we have a podcast, and we're introducing a new event soon. Tonight's program, there'll be six fantastic talks followed by an intermission. You can drink, you can have a snack, you can talk to people. And if those don't sound good, we have something you can do on your phone. Then we'll have another six talks. The format is simple. There's 20 slides that auto advance every 15 seconds. In fact, you might not notice this, but I don't have a clicker in my hand. This is an Ignite talk right now. We had over 70 amazing submissions for tonight. How we pick these 12 is the organizers do a blind voting process, and these are the 12 topics that bubble to the top. But what's more important than the topics are our speakers. These 12 beautiful, brilliant, brave people will stand on this red dot and share their story with you. And some of these are very personal. Your job as the audience is to listen, to love, to encourage and support them. Oh no, my slide has gone wrong. So if this happens to one of our speakers, what would you do? Exactly. Thank you, I feel, feel so loved. If you know someone who would love Ignite Seattle, send them the link to our live stream. We're live streaming across the world. And if you talk about us on social media, and I hope you do, please use the hashtag that you see up there. Tonight, we're very excited to welcome Punch Drunk. They are doing our video streaming and recording our videos of our talks. So if you really like to talk, you can rewatch it or you can share it with friends and family and coworkers later. Now, speaking of drunk, I am your guest MC, Nicole Steinbach. <laughs> Do not be alarmed. I'm not actually drunk. I'm just naturally drunk with excitement for Ignite Seattle. You can follow me on Twitter if that's interesting to you. And then after Ignite, you can follow me to the after party. This is 21 and up at a Pizza Mart. It's just a two-minute walk. And I hear it's more of a bar than a pizza place. Now, what are we going to talk about? How about what talks you want to hear at the next Ignite Seattle, which is happening October 3rd, and tickets will be going on sale tonight. But maybe you don't want to pay for a ticket. So why don't you become a speaker? 
Submissions are also open, and you can share your story with Seattle's best audience. I want to talk about Seattle's best team. And this is not a sports team. This is the Ignite Seattle organizing team. It's a group of 15 people who are all volunteers. I want to talk about Daniel. He launched our podcast this year. If you search for Ignite Seattle on your favorite podcast app, you can listen to nine of our episodes. The most recent one is Dan interviewing a Dom Manatrix. Ignite is not possible without sponsors, and Mindhatch is our newest sponsor. I yes, big cheers for Mindhatch. I was taking a look at what their company does, and it, I sort of boiled it down to three steps. One, contact Mindhatch. Two, they will work with you through these exciting activities with your business, my favorite being the organizational improv. And three, your business will profit. What is better than that? Ignite Seattle has a lot of meetings for our speakers and organizers, and we do all of our meetings at WeWork. WeWork is our feature sponsor this season, and they're very generous and have given you all a free work week of WeWork. Thank you very much to Evergrey, our media partner. To Four Culture, who awarded us a grant. And to our two photographers, Brady Harvey, who does the event photography, and Melinda Hurst-Fry, who did our fabulous speaker photography. Okay, people, congratulate yourself. You made it to the end of the first Ignite Talk. You passed the test. You are ready for the actual speakers. And I'm delighted to introduce our first speaker. His name is Ben, and he's going to talk about cats, rats, and AI. Welcome, Ben. So this is my cat, Metric. Uh, I got him. He, he's the reason I learned to code. I got him for two reasons. He's adorable, and I had a rat infestation in my apartment. So, given that, I can't really complain that he turned out to be a pitiless, unrelenting serial killer. Um, he's brought in one animal every 10 nights. 3 a.m. is his favorite time. I tricked him with a fake rat here. Um, sometimes the animals he brings in are dead. Sometimes they're just badly wounded, in which case I have to euthanize a small animal in the middle of the night and try to go back to sleep. This behavior has also on one occasion brought an immediate and upsetting end to sex. <laughs> now, I'm not the only one who has this problem. There's 74 million in, uh, house cats in the United States, and there's about 4 million hunters. Uh, so there's 4 million cats out there right now hunting down fresh horrors uh, and bringing them home. So you'd think that there'd be solutions out there for this, but there kind of aren't. Uh, I can't keep a collar on my cat, so anti-hunting collars with bells or frilly colors won't work. Um, people online say lock him out all night. I'm way too neurotic for that. I'd be freaking out if I did that. I could lock him in all night, but this cat poops exclusively outside. I barely have to clean his litter box. That's a lot of talent to let go to waste. <laughs> so what I needed was something that didn't exist yet. I needed a cat door that would lock selectively when my cat was trying to bring in prey. Now, the locking part is easy. I used an Arduino, which is an electronics kit for dummies, and I, I attach it to a lock. The hard part is detection. How to tell 
when my cat is coming in normally or when it's murder cat metric <laughs> trying to ruin my night. To do this, I used the hottest new tech in image processing, machine learning. Uh, machine learning <laughs> works through, uh, through lots of examples. You want a llama detector, you give it lots of pictures of llamas. It learns the shape and contour and colors of a llama. And pretty soon, it's going to be able to pick a llama out of a lineup. <laughs> I have no idea how it does this. I just know how to make it work. Um, so I wanted to use machine learning, and I bought a camera specifically for that, the Amazon Deep Lens camera. I mounted it above my cat door. Um, takes about two seconds for the cat to go up the ramp, so all this detection needs to happen in less than one second to really make it work. So I spent several months gathering and hand labeling over 23,000 images <laughs> of my cat coming and going. Uh, I'm like, I'm like the tech bro version of a crazy cat lady. Uh, so I fed all these images to an online machine learning service called SageMaker, and I created three models that I strung together to achieve the detection that I needed. The first model, stage one, just runs all day long, and it asks, is there a cat? Is there a cat? If there is a cat, it calls up stage two. Stage two says, is the cat coming or going? It's pretty simple. If the cat is coming, then it's the moment of truth. It calls up stage three. And that is, is the cat coming in normally, or is the cat coming in to ruin my night? <laughs> if, if the cat is coming in with prey, three things happen. First of all, it locks the cat door for 15 minutes, which is long enough. Second of all, it texts me pics. And third of all, it donates blood money to the Audubon Society. So this has been running for five weeks now. He's entered innocently 180 times and been unfairly locked out once. He's tried to bring in animals six times and been blocked five. That's actually outdated. He got a new one. I got a new one. Um, so for now, this just works with my cat and my house. But if I got more images, I could generalize it. So email me if you have this problem. Um, and I can sleep through the night, which was my goal. My other goal was to learn, and I definitely did learn. It's much easier to learn this stuff if you have generous experts to help you. None were more generous than Jacob, who told me when I said I want to hire an engineer to code this for me, just said, learn to code yourself. I'll help you. And I did, and I'm so glad I did. And finally, I have to thank Metric who every time my motivation was kind of getting low, he brought in a fresh, horrifying thing <laughs> and got me right back up there. So thank you, Metric. Thanks. Thank you, Ben. I think it's obvious everyone enjoyed your talk. Our next speaker is Susan. And Susan is a triple threat. She is a Ignite alumni. She is an Ignite organizer. And tonight, she is a speaker speaking about forgiving and remembering. Welcome, Susan.
we are biologically wired to remember pain. And it's good, it helps protect us so we don't get hurt again by the same things. But it's also the reason that the common advice to forgive and forget is completely misguided. Because the true path to forgiveness requires just the opposite, to forgive and remember. But what's hard is to remember the right stuff, the lesson and not the pain. I'm a mental health counselor, and for the past 15 years, I hear story after story about the awful ways we hurt one another. Partners who cheat, friends who gossip, kids who bully, or bosses who treat you unfairly. And at the end of all of it, what do we do about the people who hurt us? You could either just cut them out of your life, never talk to them again, stay angry, hold a grudge, or you could just try to live with it and pretend to forget. But maybe the thing you're trying to forget is one of the most significant things that ever happened to you. You can see how both options just create more pain. I have my own personal reasons for trying to understand forgiveness in a different way. I grew up the daughter of an alcoholic mother. It was a childhood of abandonment and insecurity and pain. And when I was 12 years old, it just got worse because my mom had a massive stroke. And she was left paralyzed, unable to speak in a vegetative state. I went from kid to caretaker with no chance of any resolution. She couldn't even talk. So what was I going to do with all of that pain? She died when I was 26, but my resentment did not. Along the way, here's what I've learned about forgiveness. It's a choice, it's a process, and there is no timeline. But I can tell you, you're ready to think about forgiving when you can accept the past will not change. No amount of anger or bitterness or social posts or jail time, nothing. Nothing you can do can change the fact that the thing that happened that hurt you happened. But that doesn't mean that you accept that it's all right, that you're just supposed to live like it didn't matter. Of course it matters. In fact, the more it hurts you, the more it has shaped you. But that's the thing to take forward. The way you stay protected in the future is to apply the lesson. And you don't need the pain to remind you of that. Forgiveness also doesn't mean that you're going to accept the, this toxic person back into your life. You can forgive at a distance. In fact, maybe the lesson that you learned was how to set better boundaries. And that's what you're applying today. Lots of times people say, well, forgiveness, what am I supposed to do? Just let that person off the hook? It's not about the other person. You're letting yourself off the hook from having to live in the past with pain, which really isn't living at all, to living in the future, but better informed. Now, we have rules about forgiveness that I think block us. One of them is this. So if you apologize, then I'll forgive you. But it better be a good apology, like bloodshed. Like, you know, and you got to say it like you mean it, the way I think you should say it. And I need video, because I'm going to post this. <laughs> and then maybe I'll forgive you. Like, forgiveness is a gift for the other person. But it's not. It's a gift for yourself. In fact, you don't even need to announce it. You don't need the other person's cooperation. You don't need them at all. You could forgive somebody if they're not alive. 
that was helpful for me. I had to rethink forgiveness, but I also had to rethink my relationship with my mom. I couldn't even think of her as my mom. I had to think of her as a person, as a woman with a backstory. Because at some point, my mom, Etta Elizabeth Knipple, of Stewart, British Columbia, was just 12 years old herself at some point. And that girl never hurt me. And that's the lesson I took forward, that everybody has a backstory, which does not excuse the future behavior that hurt me or may hurt you, but it does help explain it. And that was a heart shift for me. It started the process. So purpose has a pain. It will break you open, but it's not your landing pad. It's your launching pad to the lesson you were meant to learn, the lesson that will protect you in the future, and that is worth remembering. Thank you. Thank you, Susan. We're all going to remember that. Our next speaker is Nancy, and she's going to talk about being a mummy and wanting to work. Let's welcome her. Wow. Okay. I had a big career. I opened businesses on both coasts for International Data Group, and then I moved up here to work for Microsoft, where I launched and then grew a product called SharePoint, billion-dollar business. Yeah. Um, and I worked on Exchange 2000 for that, I'm sorry. Um, <laughs> and I was, on a, I was on a director track and things were going well, but then this kid showed up. And my husband and I, he's here tonight, we had waited a long time to start our family, and I thought, I'm going to step back. But then this kid showed up. And he's a great kid, but man, he was a crappy sleeper. And so I stepped all the way back. And what started as a one-year break, yeah, turned into five because the drama and necessity of everyday life took over. However, we got through this phase. Um, that's Joe biting Elizabeth at my parents' house. And I registered him for kindergarten. And I thought, oh, I'm going to go back to work. And so I dusted off my resume, and I put together two interview outfits because I love clothes. And I went on five interview rounds at a late-stage startup. <laughs> yeah! I was so happy and upbeat. I thought, I'll just go back to work. Um, and I went on these five rounds at this late-stage startup in the same space as SharePoint, got to the CEO who looked at his phone for 20 minutes in the interview and looked up and said, Oh, you haven't worked for four years. Thanks for coming in. Oh, not enough swear words in the world. <laughs> First, I, my feelings were hurt, and then I thought, dude, I managed a business five times the size of your late-stage startup, and if it's like this for me, what's it like for everybody else? Well, guess what? It's bad. 45% of women take breaks to take care of their families, and when they come, and they step out and they sacrifice, money and status and advancement and investment opportunities, and 60% of millennial women say they're going to do this, right? This is a quarter of our workforce, and they, they sacrifice all this stuff to go home. 
So my business partner, Sarah, and I started this business called The Swing Shift, and we work with women to bring them back into the workforce and to help them put together careers that let them have home and career. And it's going great. I mean, tons of awards, too many for the slide, and I was back. I was back, right? Yeah! <laughs> so we, I was going to events all over the city, I got invited to this um, all-woman exclusive female cocktail party, and a lead recruiter said to me, oh, you work with all the mummies who want to work 20 hours a week. That's so sweet. No one will hire them. This is my friend Emmy. This girl on girl hate and this bro attitude of, Girls, oh, go home, girls. Go home and work. Oh, don't come back. Uh-uh, I'm not having it. And you shouldn't either. Like my idol, Madeline Albright, who I got to hear here at Town Hall says, special place in hell for women who don't help other women. So I'm gonna ask you all to do three things. One, if you're at a company did you know that 30% of women in your company helps boost your productivity and productivity, profitability and productivity? So mandate that 50% of your interview candidates are female and 25% of your hires are. Many of you are in hiring positions. I know you can do this. I hope you all vote. And if you do, I'm a mean mommy. Um, <laughs> And if you vote, I want you to talk to your state and your federal legislators to do better for our child care. It costs the same amount of money to send a kid to preschool as it does to send them to UW. It pushes women out and it keeps them out. Oh, I'm super emotional about this. You need to ally. You need to ally your candidates and your colleagues. They need their voices amplified. Mine's amplified, you need to help them amplify. That was, those were my sisters, my daughter, my cousins, my niece, my friends. You all have these people in your lives. This is my family. Help me and help the world make this a more equitable place for all of us and level this playing field. Thank you. Thank you, Nancy. That was awesome. Our next speaker is Eve, and she's going to teach us how and why we should fix everything. Ever since I was little, I enjoyed fixing things. That's not actually true. Fixing came later in the beginning, I just like to take things apart. <laughs> At some point, I got my hand on a reversible Phillips flathead screwdriver, and I put the tool to use. 
I wasn't content to play with my toys. I wanted to know how they worked. What made Miss Fussy cry? <laughs> the only way to find out was to look inside. <laughs> so like a tiny toy surgeon, I opened her up. I was impressed with the gears and the tubing that I found, but I didn't pay attention to the most important part, which was how to put the gears and tubing back the way I'd found them. Miss <laughs> Fussy no longer peed into her diaper, she peed into her battery compartment. <laughs> when it came time to investigate the record player I thought was on the inside of my talking Barbie, I planned to be more careful. But then there was a snapping sound as I removed Barbie's legs so I could pry apart her body. <laughs> it turned out it wasn't a record player at all, and Barbie now needed a rubber band to keep her legs attached. <laughs> as years went by, I continued to take my things apart, but by this time I wanted to know what the inside of my radio looked like or what made a turntable turn. And when something was broken, I tried to fix it. When I moved into my current house, I thought the thermostat for the 1970s furnace needed updating. I, I was comfortable with doing projects like this, and I thought it would be pretty easy. I carefully removed the cover, I paid attention to the way the wires were attached, but there were more wires coming out of the wall than places to attach them on the new thermostat, and the colors didn't exactly match up. I played a guessing game as I ran up and down the stairs, flipping off the breaker, wiring in the new thermostat, flipping the breaker back on, listening for the sound of the furnace to start up, which it eventually did. And then it shut down. <laughs> Permanently. I fried the motherboard. We spent five weeks huddled in front of a space heater waiting for the new furnace to be installed. Now, for every mistake I made, I also learned a lot about how things are put together. And I've had a lot of different successes, as you can see. Um, but I also learned that it's better to wait until something is broken before you try and fix it. About five years ago, our TV went down during the finals of the Masters. My husband wanted to replace it immediately, but I got on the internet and realized most likely our color wheel had failed and I ordered a new part. Since this was a big TV, I was willing to waste $30 if there was a chance I could fix it. This past Masters, we watched Tiger win on that same TV. My friends think of me as their handy person. The other day, a neighbor called up asking me to diagnose the squealing sound coming from his dryer. I took a listen, and for about $13 for a new drive belt in about an hour of my time, his dryer is tumbling quietly. It's not that I'm against repairs by professionals. I am against people buying a new machine because it costs almost as much to fix an existing one. We're living in a world of planned obsolescence, and our pocketbooks and our planet are feeling the strain. Manufacturers have created a monopoly on repair with proprietary codes and proprietary tools, keeping us from fixing products that we already own. 
from clothing to electronics to appliances, we need to be in a repair mindset way before we think about recycling. Now, one day I heard a sound like rocks tumbling coming from the furnace. I paid for a service call and the technician quickly diagnosed the problem, showing me the broken part. He suggested I get a new furnace because our current one was now at the end of its life. I got a few bids, but then I remembered he showed me the broken part. <laughs> that was seven years ago and the furnace is still working. I hope tonight I've inspired some of you to join the repair revolution because I think you can fix everything. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you, Eve. That was great. And what was also great was meeting your parents way before the show. It was fun to get to know them. Our next speaker is Kristen, and she's going to talk about how you can't ask a choking person for instructions. And then she's going to tell you what to do instead. Let's welcome her. Three and a half years ago, my husband was diagnosed with stage four colon cancer metastasized to the liver and the lymph nodes. He had surgery, six months of chemotherapy, more surgery, some experimental treatments, and then home hospice care. And we were completely overwhelmed. Many of our friends and family stepped up and helped out, gave us love and support, but some of our friends were just as shocked as we were. And they would say things like, let me know if there's anything I can do to help. And the problem with that statement, even though I know it's meant with all sincerity, is that you're giving me a job to give you a job. You're asking for instructions on how to help me. Well, I've had some perspective on it. It's been two years since I lost my husband. And I'm here tonight to tell you how to offer help that's helpful. How to be the kind of friend you want to be. Because you can't ask a choking person for instructions. You need to show up and offer to help. My first tip is offer specific help with a few options. Think about what you're good at. Think about your schedule and your relationship to that person. If you're not a great cook or you're really busy, offer to deliver takeout. <laughs> Give me a few options. You know, most Mondays I can bring takeout and we can watch a movie together. How about this coming Monday, the 8th? That's the kind of email that I can answer easily when I'm sitting in the plastic chair next to the chemotherapy table. Multiple choice is always easier than an essay question. If you send me an email with just a few options and it, it's really easy for me to inline yes, no, this, that, yes, that works. 
and think about offering something other than food. After a couple of months, my refrigerator was a disgusting, sticky mess of takeout containers and other people's Tupperware. And I complained about this on Facebook and asked, could someone help clean my fridge? And it was amazing. Four of my friends showed up with pink rubber gloves, and they came over on an afternoon, and it was fun. We enjoyed it. We cleaned out the fridge, got everything. We recycled and composted and did all those things. And it was great. If you're good at scheduling, if you're good at organizing, offer that. Um, offer to drive your friend to the doctor. Illness is isolating. Grief is isolating. So be the kind of friend you want to be and show up. Ask permission to just drop by. Send me a text. Can I drop by in a few hours after work? Chances are I'll say yes. I might say text again right before you leave just in case we're in crisis mode. But yes, ask permission to drop by. We'd love to see you. But you may be afraid of saying the wrong thing. And that fear might cause you to put off calling or texting or visiting. But you still should do it. They're still the same person. They're still the friend, same friend they were before. Talk about the same things that you used to talk about with them. They may look different, but they're still in there. Greg loved to talk about home improvement projects, car projects, maker projects. If you came over and talked about some home improvement project you were working on, he would perk up and get really interested in what you were doing, what tools you were using to do it. Talk about the good old days. Tell stories. Bring old pictures. These kinds of things get them out of their head, out of the pain, out of the fear, and back into the good old days of remembering what kind of wonderful friendship you had, have. And if they want to talk about the disease, if they bring it up and want to talk about how they're feeling, you can just listen. We don't expect you to have any experience, to know how it feels. When you listen, say things like, that sounds so frustrating, that sounds so painful, that sounds so hard. Don't say, I can't imagine what that's like, because that makes it about you. So when you can't ask a choking person for instructions, you need to show up and listen and offer help. Do what you did for me tonight. You got out of your house. You came here. And you listened to my story. Thank you. Kristen, on behalf of the Ignite Seattle audience, I want to thank you for changing 800 people's lives and all the people that they're going to be able to help better. Thank you. It's so important. Thank you.
Our next speaker is Sixta, and she is the weirdo who left the elevator note. Spoiler alert, let's welcome Sixta. Thank you. So this was the title of an article at the Seattle Times. Forget making friends. Half of Washington residents don't even want to talk to you. It's real, and it was a few days ago. How many of you have heard about the Seattle freeze? How many of you experienced it? Well, I'm going to tell you how it affected me when I moved to Seattle five years ago. Coming from the Dominican Republic, where people are very warm and personal and we greet in a very different way with hugs and kisses, it was very shocking for me when I arrived to Seattle. I've heard of it, but I didn't know what to expect. So suddenly I just was walking everywhere and getting into elevators and to places and in hallways and try to greet, greet people and I was getting a weird response. Let me give you a better example of how we do it in the Dominican Republic. If I know you, and you're with five friends and I go into a room and you're there, I would go and give you a hug and a kiss, but your five friends would get the same treatment just because they're your friends. But here, I was getting into elevators and I was walking into hallways just saying hi to people and how are you, how are you doing today? And I was just being ignored. Maybe I'll get a smirk or a smile. So one day, tired of that, I left that note on the elevator of my apartment. It was a proposal to all of my neighbors, and I said, how about more smiles, more greetings, more good mornings? I promise you, it would feel good. I went home, husband comes back, he's like, that was you. <laughs> I was like, no, of course not, but he knew me. He knew that deep inside of me, I was hurting. I was feeling like the outcast. I was feeling ignored. Going to parties was another different story. Being there when everybody's having fun and you get comfortable and you get in, I was going into another level of awkwardness. I would go and try to greet people and try to hug them and then I remember the rules and I'll be back and then they're gone trying to get me and I'll be like, oh yeah, okay, yeah, okay. <laughs> and then again, the husband, he was like, Stop it. You're struggling with it. Just say hi. <laughs> He's Dominican also, but he has been here longer than I did, so he knew the deal. And I was like, okay, I'm just going to be nice and cool. That's where my new greeting was born. It was the Miss Universe greeting. <laughs> I would just go to places and be like, hi, hi, hi. Yeah. Deep inside, I was feeling still sad and confused. I had this battle inside of me. I was like, do I really want to change to fit in? Should I really do this? Should I just keep the distance? Um, and I was always wondering, what should I do about this? Because it was always awkward. But inside of me, I was not sure where I wanted to go. But in between, I said, I'm just going to become a Seattleite. I'm going to be cold like everyone else. I'm going to ignore people. So one day, I was working out in the gym of my apartment. I'm working out, and I hear the door open, and I go, I'm not listening to anything. And this person says, hello, and I said, I'm ignoring you. I'm working out. I'm a Seattleite. And then this person kept walking towards me, and this lady with the beautiful pink sari and big brown eyes stood there, and she said, hi, 
my name is so-and-so, and I'm the new neighbor. And I just wanted to tell, you, to tell you that I moved here, and I saw that you live here with your husband. If you any day want to come for a chat, even a meal, you look like you could be one of my daughters. You can come and just sit with me. Imagine what that did to me right there. Me, the one getting, you know, ignoring everyone and being cold. This person welcomed me to their lives. She opened the doors of her house, which I'm not expecting people to do when I was trying to say, hi, how are you? But she did. That lesson changed my life forever. We don't have to change who we are depending on where we go. We don't have to stop giving whatever we have inside depending on what the world's response is to us. So tonight, I'm telling you, if you're one of those going around and being ignored by people, keep doing you. Keep giving what you have to give. Somebody, somebody out there needs whatever you are giving, especially if you know that it's something that the world needs today. And if you're one of those ignoring people, I beg you today, let yourself be seen. When we say, hi, how are you? We're only trying to say, I see you. I only trying to get a human connection with you. So please, give yourself a chance. Thank you. Okay, our second, or our first speaker of our second set is Salome. She's going to be talking about an immigrant's battle. Let's welcome her. So my name is Salome Nyokabi Munyaka. It's not Salami. It's not Shalom, it's not Sali, and you can't just decide to give me a nickname just because you don't know how to say my name. <laughs> don't get me wrong. Don't get me wrong. I've put it up with it for about five years now, and it's, I've had enough of it. Because I do learn how to say people's names. I know how to say Mark, Evan, Mr. Johnson, Mr. Claridet. I've learned how to say it right. I don't say Peter the way I say it when I grew up in Kenya. I say Peter. I've learned how to say it right. So it's important for people to learn how to say the name right. So an immigrant's battle starts by how people say your name and the fear of letting people know that they didn't say it right. So for the longest time, I started letting people know, my name is Salome, but you can call me Sally. That was the my tradition every single time. What people do not understand is, when you're an immigrant, you've moved over to a new place, your struggle diversifies. There's a lot that you have to go through just to fit in. Now, when I moved from Kenya and I came here, I was super excited, that was five years ago. I was like, I came to the land of opportunities and everything, money grows on trees, oh my God, this is where I need to be. I cannot wait to make that dollar, oh yes, this is it. And then I had to learn the hardest lesson, that I had to give a geography lesson to people. 
Because the first thing when I said I'm from Kenya, people got so excited. And the first thing they would say is, oh, my God, I have a friend in South Africa. He owns this ranch. Have you ever heard of him? His name is Makachi Kamali. I'm like, um, well, sadly, that's a four-hour flight and 2,000 miles drive from where I'm actually from. So, no, I do not know your friend. People do not understand that Africa is a huge continent. I don't even know every country. Never visited all of them. I think I've been into three. I speak, what, three languages. My country has 42 languages on its own. One of the countries I heard the other day, Nigeria, has over 97 dialects. I don't even know where to begin with them. So it is a diverse place. We are not all the same. We are very, very different. People, cultures, food everything nice, like the Powerpuff Girls would say. <laughs> so, what I wanted this talk to be about is to learn that as much as we are different, we do have same similarities in so many different ways. For example, we do have cars, so I did know how to drive when I moved here. <laughs> we do. Many. We do have Ferraris. Some people actually do own them. Our president has one. Not everybody, but our president does. So I have seen one before. But we also have similar problems like poverty, homelessness. Those are similar things that we also have to go through. They may be bigger in our eyes, where I'm from, than it is here. It is easier to forget when you live here that people are lacking in things than when you are back in Kenya. But we are very different. We do have electricity, too. That was something someone asked me. Like, we do. I grew up with power. I grew up with electricity. I grew up driving. I went to a private school. I learned English from kindergarten. I didn't learn it when I moved to America. I speak English because I learned it from where I'm from. So we are very different. But there are people who don't speak English from Africa. They speak Spanish. They speak French. Because Africa is dependent on who colonized you. Your colonizer determines what you speak. And that's why I speak English, because the British won. <laughs> so before I leave you here tonight, ladies and gentlemen, I want you to take time to learn that immigrant who lives across the hall from you, or that new immigrant who just graduated and joined your office and is a new intern. Get to know their culture. Their food is probably really, really amazing, I can tell you that. <laughs> and if not for anything, then for one thing, do it to know somebody else. And please, learn their name. Thank you. That was a fantastic talk. Thank you. Our next speaker is Leah, and she's going to talk about growing up unspecial. Let's welcome Leah. Thank you. Thank you. Well, I'm Lindsay's sister, Leah, and that's been my introduction for much of my life. Growing up, our identities were intertwined because everybody knew her. Whether we were going to school or grocery store, she was like a local celebrity, like local Oprah, meeting people, greeting people. And I was her Gail King in the shadow, waiting to be introduced. And people still approach us and introduce themselves and say, oh, I knew Lindsay from years ago. My son went to school with her. When you meet her, it makes sense. She's really memorable. 
She loves strangers. She exudes happiness. She smiles. People are drawn to her. Me, I wear a tutu to stand out. So, yeah. Uh, Lindsay was born with special needs. She's developmentally delayed. And the easiest way I can explain it is she's like a three-year-old with years of experience. And though, yeah, and though um, she understands everything being said, she's nonverbal, and she has about a few dozen signs. And despite these limitations, she became a teacher to me, unbeknownst to her. And growing up, we were seldom apart. So I became more of the protector and her voice. And giving someone the power of a voice for somebody else, as a five-year-old, that's a really powerful very powerful thing. And judging, that's me, and power stance ready, ready to take over for her voice. Some bossy tendencies uh, did occur, but it was not like, not like Henry VI transgressions or anything. It was more like who yelled shotgun first or um, like who got the bigger half of the cookie. But my primary responsibility as being her voice, as I saw it, was to help her express her experiences and not downtrodden her actual voice when she was communicating with people. So more like, I would say, being the sharer of her experience and um, guiding the stories and the conversations with people. So talking about what did she do at daycare that day or where we were going for the weekend so she could enjoy and interact with people. So, oh, I think I'm forgetting my next line. Oh. Thank you. You guys are amazing. So um, one of the things with Lindsay is you, she had to be really patient. And this is something I think we can all relate to, that we've had disadvantages or disabilities in our life. And to me, it's the struggles of how, or the grace of how we handle that that stands out. So loose comparison, when you go to a foreign country and you don't speak the language, I think that that kind of applies. When I went to France, I was trying to buy a t train ticket out of the country, and I don't speak, e uh, well, I speak English, but I don't speak French, and the Frenchmen pretend not to speak English, and until a bilingual Frenchman came to assist me, I had the disadvantage of not having a voice, right? And you might say, a Frenchman would never come rescue an American, but I would say to you, touche. It's very likely true. Um, but this is what I imagine Lindsay goes through every day, right? She, she depends on her translators who aren't always there. And she, de she depends on the signs that she knows in the context of the world around her. She doesn't have the ability to express her innermost thoughts or feelings or ask deep questions. Imagine having that limitation for one day. Now imagine having that for 40 years. Like I can't even repeat myself twice before becoming frustrated. And she has the utmost patience for people. And when we don't know a sign, she helps us and does like this charade thing back and forth. And if we don't get it, she holds no resentment towards us. She's patient and accepts her limitations. So she's lived with trust and vulnerability her whole life. Trust that people are good, vulnerability that people will accept her as she is, and they do. A normal outing with her looks like us going out, her noticing a couple strangers in the corner, and approaching them with her coloring book and interacting, and they accept her, and after a minute of interacting, Lindsay is beaming and gets a huge hug from them. She trusts people so much, so this story, she trusts people so much that it, when we were little kids at McDonald's, she'd walk by and grab a handful of fries off a stranger's plate and eat them. <laughs> no one responded with anger or violence, right? Uh, shock, right, um, was the first response. But then when they see her, it's empathy and kindness, and then they move their fries further away. Um, 
But what I learned from being with Lindsay is that people are ultimately compassionate and they want to be good. And it's not this fear or divisiveness that we hear about. And I think if we showed up in more of a state of vulnerability, that people would respond with kindness and love. And so coming from a self-described misanthrope, I would say I'm still learning, but the biggest lesson that I have is that love is actually everywhere. Thank you. Thank you, Leah. That was a very special talk. Our next speaker is Roberto, and he's going to be talking about retiring his best idea. Welcome, Roberto. Show of hands, who here has seen emoji pillows or the poop emoji pillow? Yeah, I started that. And then everything went to shit. <laughs> I own a designer pillow company, and one of the products I created a few years ago was Emoji Pillows. Now, Emoji Pillows was a super popular product. I sold a lot of them all over the world. And I was proud of them, you know? I was proud of these poop pillows. <laughs> I'd worked on a lot of different kinds of pillows in my career, and these had really taken off. And then, all of a sudden, I started getting text messages from friends and family. Hey, I saw your pillows at Walmart. Hey, dude, I saw your pillows at the mall kiosk. Hey, I just saw your pillows at the dollar store. And I thought, mm, those are not my pillows. Those are definitely not my pillows. Those are some pretty crappy versions. The pillows has gotten copied. Now, everywhere I went, I would see these shitty knockoff emoji pillows. And it really pissed me off, you know, because I'd worked hard on this idea, I invested a lot, and now people were just stealing from me. So I kind of went into this protection mode where I would try to protect this one idea. So I would talk to lawyers, I would shut down counterfeits. I would enforce my trademarks. I wanted the world to know this was my thing. It was a thing I made. I was kind of like a toddler. I was like, mine, 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 mine. But it wasn't mine anymore. The copycats were winning. Why would you buy my pillows for $20 when you can get that piece of shit for five bucks? <laughs> But I was still holding on. <laughs> you know, I was optimistic. I'd say, people are going to see mine. They're going to see that they're better. They're going to hear that I'm the original. And everything would work itself out. But things got worse. Because I was making them in the thousands. And there was hundreds of stores carrying them. And because of those knockoffs, those stores started canceling their orders. And so all of a sudden, I was left with thousands of unsold emoji pillows just sitting in a warehouse. 
where I was paying thousands of dollars a month to keep all that crap. <laughs> I spent two years with tunnel vision on nothing but emojis, and in that time, I was not creative. I wish someone would have pulled me aside at the time and said, hey, snap out of it. This is not your best idea. But I didn't have anyone around me like that at the time. I had heard that 66% of companies failed within the first 10 years, and I just didn't want to go out like that. Because you see, Emoji Pillows wasn't just a quick slump for me. Emoji Pillows was killing my business. So I made the tough decision and I liquidated every last Emoji Pillow from that warehouse for pennies a piece. Because that inventory was not worth shit anymore. <laughs> but I was free now. I could reboot. I didn't start with Emoji Pillows and I wasn't going to end with it. So I knew that I was going to get there if I thought of new ideas, but I would have to get there quickly because I could be forgotten. So I revamped everything. I thought of some new ideas. And I put out a new collection. And you know what? The people that were there for me in the beginning, they came back. And I got a brand new audience at the same time. Without them, I wouldn't even be able to stand here and say I made it. When I was reworking everything, I changed my mindset from playing the victim of the knockoffs to realizing I was going to have a lot more creative ideas in the future that would thrive. But my biggest wall that I could hit was to become complacent. So in my two-year-long pillow fight against the copycats <laughs> and two years of not being creative, I learned a lot. But I can definitely say I'm very glad to be done with that shit. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you, Roberto, for inspiring us to retire our best idea. Our next speaker is Bonnie, and she's going to be talking about designing for conflict. Let's welcome Bonnie. Anyone who has flown economy class knows the armrest challenge. You're gingerly trying to place your elbow on that skinny plastic thing, and so is the person next to you, because there's only one armrest for two people. All of us have eaten at restaurants or cafes where the tables and chairs are just a little too close together, and someone keeps hitting the back of your chair. I was at this fundraiser recently in Seattle, and there was a couple in just that situation. About half an hour in, the lady said to all of us at the table, I am not giving any money to this organization because they clearly don't care about me. Recently, a friend of mine posted all over social media how horrible his upstairs neighbor was for vacuuming at 11 p.m. How could she do this? Doesn't she know I have to go to work in the morning? And then I do yoga at a studio that shares a wall with a basketball court. <laughs> <laughs> but
But not just this, we have to cross that basketball court to get to the studio. <laughs> so you can imagine when there's a basketball game going on, how disruptive it is. And likewise, when we're in Shavasana and someone is dribbling a ball against that wall, how, how distracting that can be. So these are all examples of design for conflict. They set us up to blame each other for design errors or oversights or just bad design, when the reality is it's really more about the space than the other person. And we prepare for battle, to defend ourselves, to defend our right, because we think it's uh, an affront to, our, to us. We feel like victims in this. And while I was looking for slides for this talk, I saw so many slides for how many people wanted to kill their upstairs neighbor. <laughs> and so it can inspire real and imagined violence. So I came into this sensitivity about space through a major illness, long-lasting illness. And when you're very fearful and you're very sick, all of your senses are heightened. So those lights become even so much brighter. And maybe they raise your anxiety, or maybe they give you a headache. Or maybe it's the smells of chemical cleaners, or foods, or medicines, or other people that bother you. Or maybe it's the noises. Maybe it's the sounds of carts going down the corridor, or doors slamming, or beeps of machines. And I have heard things in ERs that I wish I had never heard. And I was always cold. So I would wrap myself in blankets when I went to the doctor's office. It would be 100 degrees outside, but I knew that once I got there, I would freeze. Now, I became sensitive to space through something very particular, but the reality is we are all affected by our environments. And some of us, most of us are unconscious of it. People are incredibly adaptable, and we adapt to things we probably shouldn't adapt to. But I also learned that space could improve interactions, that it could improve healing rates and lower stress, that it could shift the way that we see ourselves and each other. Because space, it communicates a lot about who we are, about what we value, what we don't value, who we value, and who we do not value. So my goal in this is for all of us to be aware of how we are affected by our environments. Because, because we are all affected and... <laughs> And, but notice also, no, not just when you're anxious, but also when it's a good, a good thing, like when the acoustics are just right and it puts you at ease, or when you find your way where, the, where you can navigate intuitively, or when the lighting is just right for what you're trying to do. And when you do find yourself in a design for conflict, be allies to each other instead of adversaries, because we are all victims to bad design. And the good news, is that, that everything around us, this stage, the acoustical panels, the screen, the pews, the doors, the street outside, the sidewalks, they were all designed. We built all of this so we can build it better. Thank you.
Thank you, Bonnie. And at this moment, I'd like to thank Town Hall Seattle for being designed for community. There is no armrest challenge here. Our next speaker is Kent, and he's going to talk about multisensory music and autism. Welcome, Kent. Music. Music is fundamental to being human. However, some autistic people, not artistic, but some autistic people have difficulty accessing music due to sensitivity to sound. But the benefits of music don't come from sound. Rather, the benefits of music come from the content of music, which is tone, rhythm, melody, and harmony. My theory is that we just have to get tone, rhythm, melody, and harmony to autistic people's brains. And that is possible through senses in addition to sound. Here's how I do it. I start with object exploration. For example, while seeing what we can do with a ball, we poke it, punch it, press it, bounce it, whatever, with various parts of our bodies, each of these actions produces specific tensions and relaxations in our muscles, which is called muscle tone. My theory is that each muscle tone corresponds to a specific auditory tone. Now, we can bring together multiple objects. For example, tap, 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 punch. Tap, 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 punch. Combining tone and rhythm in our bodies to get a melody that is seen and felt, we can work with a partner. I move float, float, and my student moves spin, 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 working at the same time or in call and response. Interestingly, one single object has many rhythms. For example, the tops of the back posts are a one, two. The rungs are one, two, three and the legs are one, two, three, four. With object exploration, the tones, rhythms, melodies, and harmonies that are felt and seen have specific counterparts or equivalencies in sound. Object exploration leads to painting music, where I set up a vertical piece of plexiglass for participants to paint abstract patterns on either side. So we can paint the one rhythm several different ways. For example, the rhythm one, two, three can be painted hard, hard line, hard, hard line, soft, soft circle, soft, soft circle, dot, 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 dot. Various visual patterns elicit different qualities of movement or tone and rhythms, which add up to form melodies and harmonies. Each of these, these each mel tone, melody, and harmony is felt in the performer's movements, seen in the performer's movements, and seen in the visual images left on the plexiglass. Next, I, I take these visual images and I produce them on the floor. 
so that we can respond to them with tones, rhythms, melodies, and harmonies in our locomotion. For example, someone can slide along the sides of the triangles, or hop from dot to dot, or meander along the curve. Remember, each of these tones, rhythms, melodies, and harmonies remains that same tone, rhythm, melody, or harmony, regardless of the sense through which it is experienced. Now, instead of movement causing the visual patterns, the visual patterns cause the movements. Here's what I'd like you to do. Notice the multi-sensory tones, rhythms, melodies, and harmonies that are all around you and within you. Ask yourself what your topic really boils down to at its core. Try applying my ideas to your music listening, music making, or teaching. I hope this talk will cause you to look at music, and I genuinely mean look at music in a new way, because music is ubiquitous, yet it is grossly misunderstood. Most importantly, remember, tone rhythm, tone, rhythm, melody, and harmony is what it is all about. The combination of tone, rhythm, melody, and harmony creates countless benefits, regardless of the senses through which they are experienced. I'm Kent Godfrey. I teach the components of music to autistic people through senses other than sound. Take a look at my website. Thank you very much. Kent for that great music lesson. Our next speaker is Ginger, and she's going to tell us a story about when a transgender band walked into a rural Olympic Peninsula bar. Welcome, Ginger. When I was a little kid, one of my favorite TV shows was The Partridge Family. It was about it was about a mom and her kids. They played in a band together. They had all kinds of fun adventures. And it was such a neat family. I wish I could have called that one my home. I also dreamt of someday being Lori. She was the smiling girl behind the keys. But none of this was in the cards for me because I was the only son of a hopeful immigrant family and I had a role to play. I did well in school, got married, had a kid, a great career, but everyone's affections were directed to the accomplished facade of the man I had created. And I felt very alone. So I came out late in life, and I saw some transgender friends playing in a band, and I was absolutely mesmerized. Now, I knew nothing about rock music. I hadn't been to a concert before. All I had to offer to them were my childhood skills as a violin player. <laughs> but I promised I would work hard. I would study any instrument. And I asked them, can I join the band? And they said, yes. And so I bought a whole bunch of equipment. I learned how to play the keys. We put together hours and hours of music so we could fill an entire night. And we started looking for our first big public shows to play. And it was in the town of Port Angeles, Washington. 
which is a pretty rugged and coastal town way out on the Olympic Peninsula. I know it mainly for logging and fishing. It's the last place you'd expect to find a trans band playing in a bar. But we put on our colorful outfits and we strutted into that bar and at nine o'clock it was already packed because everyone knew that that band was coming. And the men, they clutched their beers and the women, they looked us up and down as we walked towards the stage. And then we started playing. And the 80s music drew the women on the floor and then the men followed and we have played for 15 years out there to packed houses. It was at these shows, at these shows I met this man, and he was a self-described redneck. At first he was really creeped out by us, and now we had conversations, gave each other hugs, and he told me a story about a friend of his with whom he'd lost touch. And this friend got in pack in, back in touch with him and said that she had transitioned and was living as a woman and wanted to reconnect. And much to his credit, because he had come to know us as people, not as fears and assumptions, but at a level of music and connection, he said he was not afraid to meet her. And they did meet, and they did reconnect. And I had to ask him, knowing who you are and where you came from, and you're standing here talking with me, giving me hugs, and knowing your friend, where your friend came from, and who she has become, which one of you changed more? And he thought for a second, and this little smile crept across his face. And he said, me, I've changed more. This thing that we do, it is a risky thing. There are people in places who would have nothing to do with us. We stick out everywhere we go. But because we have authenticity, people tell us that they're inspired. And I think it's like we lift this suffocating, wet blanket of conformity off of everybody by being a little bit bigger than life. And it creates space underneath where people can finally breathe and be themselves. One of my favorite songs that we play is called Major Tom. It's an obscure song about an astronaut <laughs> who gets lost in space. And even though he's lost, it ends on this beautiful chorus over and over of I'm coming home. And I can look across our audiences and I see young, old, gay, straight, queer, trans, abled, and not. They are all dancing and singing together because we're taking the risk to be ourselves and they can join us. And when that chorus hits, Everyone tips their heads back and they reach their hands for the ceiling and they're all singing, I'm coming home. And me, I'm the smiling girl behind the keys. I'm making music and people are dancing and singing with me. It feels like home. Thank you so much, Ginger, for that amazing talk. 
We have come to the end of our talks for this evening. It's sad, but I have some information that might make you get happy. Is that the right connection now? Okay. Okay, but before we do that, I have a few really important thank yous that I want to say. Thank you to our sponsors, WeWork, Mindhatch, and For Culture. Without them, Ignite Seattle would not be possible. Thanks again to Town Hall Seattle for this beautiful venue to hold Ignite Seattle. Thank you to Punchdrunk for doing our video and for Brady and Melinda for doing our photography. Huge thank you to our organizing team and audience. Give yourself a round of applause. You make Ignite special. And last, but certainly most important, our amazing speakers. <laughs> <laughs>